Hi, and welcome to the podcast ministry of New Life Church in Springfield, Ohio. We hope that the transformative truths of God's Word impact, challenge, and bless you. I thirst. Uh, water uh, is is used, you know, repeatedly throughout Scripture as something that that is, you know, uh, you know, something joyful, something that satisfies, something that uh, you know that that quenches, you know, the longing and the thirst. You know, there's there's so many different scriptures you could go to about how you know how wonderful it is, you know, to to just have water and to have you know your thirst quenched. And the most uh, the most incredible, you know, story obviously in the world is is the central story of Jesus Christ and his passion and, and everything that, that was wound through that through, from creation on. I mean, you really want to just kind of uh, you know, blow your mind. He's the lamb, the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. So if you needed any other proof, he is the main thing. He is the central thread that runs through the tapestry of creation, of mankind, of our story. Jesus Christ is the most important part. And uh, I, I want to go to a couple, uh, a couple scriptures here. We'll read them. Um, we love the synoptic gospels. Synoptic, again, means to, uh, to see together. Um, you know, it, and it's important that we, uh, you know, optic, you know, we get that, the same word, you know, the optometrist, kind of from the same, same type of root. But uh, the synoptic gospels means, you know, they're all seeing the same thing happen in different ways with different, uh, uh, you know, different, sometimes like a different detail or sensory detail thrown in because you might be standing somewhere else or you might, you know, notice this particular detail. And so, uh, you know, it's, a, it's the most amazing story ever told, and it took more than one person to tell it right. Amen? Matter of fact, it takes all of us to continue the story of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So the synoptic gospel, we're going to use two accounts. So Jesus at this point is uh, on the cross or in transit. He's on the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. He's getting ready to go to the cross, and we're going to talk about his thirst. John 19 and 28 through 30. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now we want to read Matthew 27, 32 through 34. I could have read that one first, but um, that, this is uh, you know, in transit here. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. So Jesus at this point has already been scourged. He's already been whipped and tortured and, and, and abused and humiliated. And he is now on the way of suffering. That's, you know, that's, that's what we refer to it as. So Jesus is now carrying his own cross up the hill, Golgotha, to be crucified. And you know, his, uh, through no fault of his own, you know, through blood loss and through uh, you know, just uh, you know, possibly not having eaten for a long time, he just his strength is running out. And so they compel this guy who's just kind of minding his own business, say, you come help, bear, you help carry Jesus' cross. And so Jesus continues to struggle and make his way up you know, as best he can. And this other man, Simon of Cyrene, uh, he compels to bear the cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. So um, this is, uh, you know, there's two different times when he's approached by, you know, being able to have his thirst quenched. 
And the first time, you know, he refuses, and that's the second passage of Scripture. He said, you know, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to take this, uh, you know, this, this wine. Um, you know, I'm not going to take anything, you know, right now that, that will uh, possibly uh, allow, allow me not to uh, engage in the fullness of, uh, of this, my passion, or to, to dull my senses, or to anyway not fulfill prophecy. I need to be clear-headed. I need to do this the right way. I'm going to do it fully and completely. So he begins to, you know, he, he shrugs it off. He says, I'm going all the way to the cross um, on my, you know, as, until my strength you know, fails, and I'm not going to be affected in any way by, by anything else. The second time, and this is in John, um, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, which is very, very important here, he, he has now uh, been crucified, and uh, you know, he, he's clear-headed, he understands what's going on. Um, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and when they filled a sponge with sour wine, they put it on hyssop, which is a, a branch, or you know, just a, uh, I think uh, one of the other synoptic gospels uh, calls it a reed, Okay, so it's, a, it's this, you know, it's a small piece of wood, it's a branch where um, they, they lift the sponge up to his mouth and he partakes of it. They filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, then put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Amen. And he said, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. And I'm so grateful that he did. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's bow our heads. Adam, will you pray over the reading of the word? Amen. Praise God. There's a lot of reasons why we uh, we should uh, you know shun or avoid uh, work worldly or earthly pleasure, okay? And, uh, and one of the primary ones is, is we should always refuse to accept or embrace or partake in anything that can compromise our mission, uh, what God created us to do. I, I don't ever want to take on something you know, of the world or worldly practice or, 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 or you know, even if it's not bad in itself. I don't want anything that's going to keep me from serving God the way that I'm supposed to. You know? I, I don't want to take on a responsibility that's going to keep me from my eternal destiny and being the man that God created me to be. It's just not, I'm not interested in that. I don't want that. I prioritize God and his kingdom and his plan higher than that. Even if I have to suffer, you know, even if I have to uh, go through persecution, you know, that's my heart. I want to always put God first and his plan for me. Because whenever I get to heaven one day and, and I stand before God in judgment, just like you will, I want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to have any reason or any, uh, I, I, I don't want to have any uh, asterisk by my name, right? And Jesus, what a powerful way that he demonstrates this, uh, you know, this concept. Uh, he, he refused to accept even something that, you know, anything at all that would uh, possibly keep him from doing what, you know, fulfilling prophecy and doing what he was supposed to do. Now, he refuses to drink the wine in Matthew 27 and 34, but he actually partakes um, of, a, uh, of a drink, of this drink, uh, while on the cross in John 19. But while he was still going through the act and fulfilling prophecy, he refused any kind of you know, possible relief that could affect him. And uh, th this, is, uh, this is really, really interesting to me. I just want to do a little bit of teaching uh, right here. And um, 
The question is, did he actually take a, uh, a painkiller on the cross, as it were? Did he take something that dulled his senses and, uh, and allowed him you know, not to think and not to be able to function right? Well, you can't blame him. I mean, good night. I, 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 whenever I you know, had my, my famous tonsillectomy, I was happy to get what I could get. You know? I, was, I was happy to, to try and dull the pain a little bit, and, uh, you know, and I was glad to have it. But Jesus did not do this. Not at all. And when he said, I thirst, um, that, that wasn't so much for the physi- physiological aspect of it as he was um, you know, in the middle of fulfilling prophecy. Um, because, and the reason why I say that he didn't, he didn't even take on you know, that, that, that pleasure, that quenching of his thirst that he could have even in that moment is because he was there to do something powerful and important. He was there to partake in the fullness of sin and the sin nature and pain and suffering. The Word of God says he became sin who knew no sin. And when he drank the cup, when he took the cup, he drank the sins of the world. And so whenever he walked through this, he decided to walk through this in the fullness of what the experience was going to be. And I'm telling you what, it, it should be stirring to me and you that, that Christ would walk through um, what he did for us, the suffering and the pain and the torment. And, and he never took anything, you know, he, he never partook in any uh, quenching or any, any worldly pleasure that could possibly keep him or impact him from doing uh, the fullness and, and experiencing the fullness of what God had ordained for him. And so how much more should we understand that while worldly pleasure, you know, there, there are wonderful things in the world that God created for us to be blessed and enjoy and take, you know, take happiness and fulfillment in, nothing that can keep us from being who we're supposed to be in Christ and accomplishing what we're supposed to accomplish for the kingdom is good. It's a sin. Anything that keeps you from fulfilling God's plan, God's word, is illegitimate. It's an illegitimate pleasure. And I said, I wanted to start with Christ because I always want to start with Christ. I want to end with Christ. But he is the, he's the most central figure in the word. Did he actually take a painkiller on the cross? I don't think so. I don't believe so at all. If anything, he was uh, making the statement, I thirst, for a lot of theological reasons that are very relevant to the passion that he was undergoing, this, this, the, the passion of Christ when he would die for us and then res- be resurrected. But then something really uh, beautiful happened. And here's where, uh, you know, maybe it's something that you've not heard or maybe it's, it might be a little bit revelatory to you. It, it definitely... Uh, it really, it really interested me. Uh, we know that the Roman soldiers, so let, let's, uh, I, it, this is the most famous scene in the world, so I don't really need to you know, do a whole lot of uh, you know, interacting here so you can see it. Um, but uh, basically, the Roman soldiers, and there's a centurion there, which means it's not just one or two, probably there's at least you know, a detachment, probably a tent party, which is about... Uh, uh, about 10 guys or so. They're probably there on detail. You don't ever want to get in the middle of a bunch of you know, Jewish rebels like this without you know, having at least some backup. So they're, they're crucifying him. They've done their part. And actually, um, the, the people who are really behind it are the religious people of the day. They're the ones who have kind of, you know, they're the ones, the Pharisees, who have kind of, they want Jesus gone. They want him dead. And they're even willing to trade the Son of God, you know, trade off on that and, and actually, you know, kind of kowtow to the Roman authorities who they hate, you know, so bad. But even they are some, you know, they start, you know, licking Pontius Pilate's boots just so they can get Jesus crucified, which is unbelievable that you would hate 
Jesus so much whenever all he did was come to set you free that you would, you know, a out to your oppressor, you, you know. But that's, that's what hate will do. That's what you know, a religious spirit will do to you. Amen. And uh, so we see this happening, and there's these uh, kind of bystanders. I don't want to talk about the Pharisees. I bash them enough. I want to talk about the Roman soldiers uh, who are here and, and show you something really, really uh, powerful. Now, these guys... They're kind of just bystanders. They're kind of just the arm of the law, just like a police officer. I'm here, you know, because I'm supposed I'm doing my job, but this is not personal for me. But they kind of be, it kind of becomes personal, and they at least take on part of their uh, part of the action on you know on their own because they're slapping Jesus. You know, they have to do that. You know, and, and they're spitting on him, and you don't have to do that either. So they've kind of uh, found a way to get on the bandwagon to be mean to this guy just because that's who they are. And so next thing, they, and how they do that is say, oh, yeah, you're the king of the Jews, are you? And they're Romans. You know, they're really the ones in power. So when they see him set with wearing a sign saying, you know, king of the Jews, um, they jump on it. And so they are, uh, they're, they're championing the cause of the religious people, and they're slapping him. You know, you know, they've got him blindfolded. They're trying to push him around. They're spitting, you know, pulling out his beard, which is a huge insult to the society, you know, of the day. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing everything that they can to kind of, you know, be bullies, not even really invested in it one way or the other. But then something really, really amazing happens. See, we know that the soldiers at one point in this story um, have mocked and abused him of their own volition. You know, that's the attitude. That's where they're at. They're not just, you know, carrying out the, uh, you know, the, the, the rules and, you know, the, the, the sentence. They're not just crucifying and just crossing their arms. They've actually got involved and started mocking Christ. So we know that's where they were at the beginning. And we also know that they had a serious change of heart. Centurions are basically sergeants. They're the toughest, meanest, ugliest guys in the Roman legions at all times. That's, that's who they were. That's what they were. Um, if, you, if you're over 100 men, um, that was the highest you could ever go. Be coming up, you know, as a, you know, say you're, you're just a street kid and you don't have you know, high rank or birth. You could never be an officer or a legate or something like that. You don't get promoted. The highest you can go by being tough is a centurion. So these guys are mean, nasty, you know, vicious killers, and the way and they, they carry it, what's called a vine stick, which is about a four-foot, you know, piece of you know gnarled wood, and that's how they keep everybody in line. They beat the daylights out of their troops, and they're the toughest guys in the unit, which is really amazing to me, because it's the centurion who says, "Truly, this was the Son of God." What a change of heart. What a change of heart from, and how, how weird does that make you feel whenever you realize in that moment, this guy that I just spit on and, and, and done all this terrible things to when I didn't even have to, and that was the son of God. But here's where I think the change happened. Read John 19, I got it. Um, again, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it in his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, gave up his spirit. Something really, really powerful that I don't want to escape your, you know, your notice or your understanding happens in this moment. And uh, we, we know from Jesus' perspective, but now I just want to say, you know, you know, let, let's just give this... One Roman soldier, maybe he's not even the centurion. He's just there. He's the guy who put the, the nails in. Um, he does something very, very powerful, and there's a change in heart 
Um, what is offered to Jesus in this moment is not just you know, a random cup of wine, of old, nasty wine. If you look it up, it's not oinos, it's oxos, which means um, it's something different. What he is offered um, in this moment is called Pascha. And Pascha was a very famous, you know, if you look it up, you Google it, you do a little research, read a book, um, however you want to do it, you'll find that this is something that you know, everybody knew about. This is the, uh, the kind of the standard drink of the Roman legions across the whole empire. doesn't matter. You can go as far as Spain. You can go as far north as Gaul. You can go to Africa. Everybody knows what you're talking about. Well, what is Pascha? Pascha is disgusting. It is a... Uh, it's, it's not really a, a wine that you can, there's no alcohol content anymore because of the vinegar um, that's gone. And I think it's acetic acid that has caused, you know, th that they've mixed in with it. So now it's basically a gross mix, one part vinegar, one part old stale wine, and two parts water, basically. If you mix up a nice, you know, a nice batch of, of Pasca, that, that's what you'd have. And the reason why you would have that, um, number one, it was, uh, it was something that would quench your thirst a little better than water sometimes. You know, it had something to it. Sounds gross, but it would, it would quench your thirst. Um, way more importantly, though, this stuff was so strong um, that you could actually drink the local water then and not get sick. And all the bacteria and all... And if you, and yeah, I'm a huge nerd, so I have this perspective. I'm trying to limit what I'm throwing out here. But say you're on campaign and you've marched 20 miles and... Uh, and now you look down at this little leather satchel with what would be just water, you know, that you got out of a dirty well. And who knows how sick you're going to get because you've had it there, you know, for days and weeks. What you needed to do is you needed to put a little bit of Pasca in there. You need to mix up a little bit. And then all the bacteria and nastiness um, would probably be killed. Would it taste horrible? Yeah, but you wouldn't get sick and have dysentery and die, which is always good when you're on campaign. And so these guys who marched all over the world fighting you know, Caesar's battles, this is what they drank. Pasca. Disgusting. But it would keep you alive. You know, it, it would, it would kind of clean you out. It would make sure that everything that you were drinking, you wouldn't die from it. You wouldn't die from all these terrible bacterias. And uh, this is what they offered Jesus to drink. But here's where it gets really interesting for me. This was this soldier's personal supply really makes you kind of think a little bit. Um, this is standard issue. This is what you give the soldiers. Like I said, I've kind of already you know, made, the, made the case. This is the soldier's drink. This is what the Roman centurions, you know, you know, they, they delve this out. This is what you carry you know, in, your, in, your, in your water skin you know, because it's, it's better than water because water, you know, go bad, get nasty, and, you, and the taste is so awful when you get it out of a dirty brook. And you know, this stuff would kill all the bad stuff in it. So this is standard issue, Roman stuff. And so this guy offers this criminal who he's just crucified and sped on and, uh, and tortured and mocked from his own supply. And this is where it gets even more interesting. Um, you know, there was no way to get it to him because he's, he's crucified. He's up on, on, on this tree. You know, he can't hardly reach it. And uh, so this guy is just having this moment where he's like, Realizing this is, this is not just an average man. This is not just a normal person. This is, and he says, I'm thirsty. And he's like, if it was anybody else, I'd be like, oh, good. Yeah, we're trying to kill you. Yeah, that's not a problem. I don't care. Not a problem at all. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't care. But he says, I thirst. And this guy 
reaches into his own limited supply of drink and gives him something to quench his thirst. And here's, like I said, where it continues to get interesting. He says um, it's put on a sponge. Now, you need to know what sponge we're talking about because an exospongium is, uh, that's what you know, the Romans would use to clean pots and pans and themselves. So that, this is a different word. This is not that. This is something different. And I had the picture and I totally forgot to load it, but the sponge was the liner of his helmet. Um, you, it would either be felt or sponge, one way or the other, because the helmets, you know, they'd get super hot, and, you know, they, they would chafe, and they're made out of metal you know, or leather, depending on, you know, who you were or where you were, you know, where you were stationed. So um, the inside of the helmet, there was a little bit of a sponge to soak up your sweat and to, keep, you know, keep you from, uh, you know, from you know, sweating or chafing throughout the day. And so this is super gross, but it's kind of precious at the same time, because this is what the Roman soldiers used, you know, a lot of times. You know, that's you know, they would use their cap, and sometimes they would use the sponge in their cap just because, you know, it's the first century and everybody's gross. And that's part of it. So the sponge, if you look up, you know, what it was, so you, you see this guy has a, uh, a total change in his heart. And so he's standing there in full, dress, in, you know, full, you know, combat uniform, you know, wearing his lorica segmentata and everything that he would normally wear. And he's standing there, and he hears this man say, I thirst. And he takes the liner out of his own helmet and gets into his own supply of that drink. And he puts it on a branch. Now, I was really hoping to do the research and uncover the fact that it was on a spear, and his spear was made out of, you know, the same stuff, but it wasn't. So I can't, can't go there. But it's incredible enough already, right? It's amazing. So he takes this small reed, and he puts the liner of his helmet soaked with, with this this posca, some, just a little something to quench his thirst, and he raises it up, and the only reed, apparently, that he could find was made out of hyssop. You know, I thought, for all my life, I thought hyssop, you know, for some reason I got it backwards, and I thought that was like the drink. Um, but it's not. Hyssop is the type of branch. And the crazy thing about this is you can look back in Exodus 12 and see it again. And it was the branch, the little gathered branches that people used to dip into the blood and then put it over the doorway, and thereby the passing of the angel of death. And so he is fulfilling amazing prophecy as he uses the same type of branch and he quenches the thirst. 